Welcome to Undisclosed. This is the addendum episode. Rabia here, and I'm happy to be hosting uh, this week as we are covering the second episode of our special series on Keith Davis Jr. Uh, This week, I am joined by Amelia McDonald-Perry, who everybody's familiar with. She is our intrepid investigator and reporter on this series, as well as being a well-known journalist writing about crime and uh, all things related to criminal justice for The Appeal and also for Rolling Stone. And we also have another very special guest this week who you would have heard if you listened to episode two, and I hope you did, and that is Larry Smith Jr. Larry worked for the Baltimore Police Department for 18 years uh, before retiring in mid-2017. During his time with the BPD, Larry worked in patrol, several specialized units, and for the last three years, he was a detective in internal affairs where he investigated dirty cops. Larry is now an outspoken critic of the Baltimore Police Department and racist, classist, corrupt policing in general, and writes about these issues for The Appeal and Medium. Welcome to the show, Larry. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being on, and thank you also for participating in this series. Um, It was great to have your voice on. I want to kind of start off by framing like what was covered in this episode, and uh, it's just first of all, Amelia, kudos, really, really well done. Uh, I want everybody to know that Amelia is like pretty much producing the whole thing, um, <laughs> staying, not sleeping much nowadays. I know, but uh, we think your sleep is worth our, our our entertainment and education. It's interesting. So this episode starts out by kind of explaining, you know, how how are dirty cops investigated, basically, or not necessarily even dirty cops. Whenever there's this thing called, um, Larry, actually, can you describe what a use of force means? And then both of you maybe chime in on how Maryland, at least at the time of this incident in 2015, approached investigating the use of force by officers. Well, so use of force can be, I mean, generally, it's usually an officer deploys his taser, mace, baton, uh, police-involved shooting. It can occasionally involve the use of hands if a suspect is resisting you and you have to use physical force to restrain them or handcuff them. That could be considered a, a use of force as well. So, in all of these situations, there is some kind of like investigative aspect that leads to a report or something afterwards. Any sort of use of force, no matter if it's they have different levels. So, if you may somebody, if you tase somebody it automatically triggers a certain report that your supervisor has to complete. And then it gets forwarded through what's called the blue team system. It's a, it's the uh, computer software at BPD. So mm-hmm. if someone in patrol uses force, the supervisor will complete what's called a use of force packet. It's basically just some reports and it gets forwarded to internal affairs. Internal affairs will review it. And based on the level of force, they will determine if further investigation is warranted or if, you know, somebody like CERT needs to take over the investigation. And for something like the police shooting, you know, FIT would automatically be, at that time anyway, the unit that would be called in to investigate because it was a, what they call categorical use of force or a major use of force incident because it was a police-involved shooting. So at the time, it was the force investigation team and that's since been, you know, disbanded and reopened under a new acronym with new officers, but... So let's talk a little bit about that because you tell us, I mean, that was really kind of important to what happened here is this FIT unit. Uh, And you described that Commissioner Batts at the time brought together this kind of new thing. uh, It's called the FIT, which is a force investigative team unit. Is that right? Under policy 710? Team, yeah. Okay. And you also say in the episode that it was a clusterfuck. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So can you, first of all, explain why and how it was different from whatever the process was before this unit was created. I mean, to me, it was a clusterfuck purely based on the fact that I spent a good, like solid eight hours, I would say, reading policies, reading articles about fit, trying to figure out for sure what their purpose was, whether or not, and this was something that Justine Barron in our, our Freddie Gray series looked at deeply too, was whether or not the FIT team was supposed to be doing this criminal investigation 
or if they were supposed to be doing an administrative investigation. And it shouldn't be hard to answer. We should be able to <laughs> answer that fairly simply. But the policy that covers FIT at the time, uh, it was policy 710, wasn't uh, explicit, like kind of beat around the bush about that. And mm -hmm. um, it's important because, you know, obviously the stakes are different. And it matters in terms of like what the potential resolution could be. And as it turned out, you know, prior it used to be the homicide unit that would look into major uses of force, but there was an actual sort of procedure. They would do the, the criminal sort of investigation. They would pass along the findings to the um, state's attorney's office. The state's attorney's office would decide whether or not to pursue charges. And at that point, internal affairs would come in and they would take over the administrative investigation. Sorry, they would do that regardless of whether or not they were any criminal charges, right? Right. I mean, they could have okay. been doing the criminal investigation and and concurrently internal affairs could have been doing the administrative investigation, that is investigating whether or not there were any policy violations, but they usually did them consecutively. Fit wasn't, I mean, I honestly spent so much time like parsing the policy and being like, what are they trying to say here? And what I ended up figuring out is that they were supposed to be doing both, but even internally, I know that when I was talking to Larry about it, like the internal sort of perspective seemed to be more that they were doing the administrative investigation. And in fact, um, the main investigator in both the Keith Davis Jr. investigation and in the Freddie Gray investigation, one of the main investigators, Michael Boyd, when he testified at one of the Freddie Gray trials, he was asked to sort of explain what the purpose of FIT was. And he gave a kind of rambling answer that amounted to the kind of steps that you would do in an administrative investigation, not one that you would do in a criminal investigation. So even they, like the detectives in that unit, were confused about what they were supposed to be doing. Okay. So if that's the case, and it sounds like you said that, I mean, from your conversations with Larry and, and digging in, that even internally, this is how they understood the purpose of the FIT unit. Well, then who was doing the criminal investigation? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's funny now that I sort of know a lot more about FIT and a lot more and have been comparing the Keith Davis Jr. case to the Freddie case and thinking about them in context of how much publicity each one got. I really feel like personally, and this is my opinion, that the way FIT handled the Freddie Gray investigation was actually the outlier. The way that they seem to have been somewhat investigating it criminally isn't, I don't think, was very typical of how they would normally handle one of those investigations, because I think in general, they were never sort of looking to see whether a crime had been committed. It was more that they were looking to see whether or not the use of force was justified. And there's a really sort of distinct difference in terms of perspective with that kind of investigation. So Larry, can I ask you, were you ever part of this, the FIT unit? Uh, no, I was never a member of the FIT unit. Okay. Would you say what Amelia has just said is accurate in terms of uh, Freddie Gray being an outlier and this being more typical of what you saw? Uh, yes and no. I, I think Freddie Gray was so unique and the FIT unit was still sort of new. Like I, I think Freddie Gray was sort of the, the first real investigation that was garnering media attention, outside attention. So mm. I think with Keith Davis Jr., they were, I think, cognizant of how they messed up the Freddie Gray investigation and the possibility that Keith was so close to the end of the uprising that this could potentially um, be another case that was in the media. So I, I think that's where they sort of operated a little bit differently. So the episode starts off with this um, examination of whether or not or how cops themselves are investigated by other cops, which, you know, a lot of us are kind of skeptical about whether, I mean, is that even <laughs> something that can be done in a way that's like transparent and legitimate? You know, can police really be expected to investigate themselves, especially when like, in this case, the directives and procedures are completely unclear, but sometimes they are more clear. But how how did you, like, being part of internal affairs for all these years, kind of see that play out? And is that part of your criticism of Baltimore police right now? Oh, absolutely. Uh, my very first case I was given, and I went to internal affairs in October of 2013, and after sort of shadowing, like, senior detectives for a little while to kind of, you know, learn the ropes a little bit. My very first case was against a specialized unit that I had literally just worked for. 
And so I, I took the case back to my sergeant and, and I said, you know, I, I don't think that I can be impartial because right. I know the accused officers really well. I mean, I, I literally just left this unit. And I mean, he took it he took it back and assigned it to another detective. But when he did it, he also told me, welcome to internal affairs. Like, like sometimes uh -huh. you're going to have to investigate cops you worked with. They, they didn't do kind of an analysis of there'd be a conflict of interest type of thing or or any kind of bias that could play into it. No, not at all. I, I saw, I mean, we all know who Daniel Herschel is from the GTTF. Uh, the, the guy had so many complaints. And one of the detectives in my squad was very close friends with him outside of, of work and wow. investigated his complaints. And I was like, how can that be fair? Sure enough, he, you know, was never really held responsible internally for any of the many, many complaints he received. It wasn't until the FBI came in that he and all those other officers were actually held accountable. Proof positive right there, I think. Right. America has fallen in love with Best Fiends, the five-star rated mobile puzzle game. Discover the world of minutiae and its cute, courageous inhabitants in this fiendishly fun, free-to-download puzzle adventure. Now, I've only started playing Best Fiends this week, but I can already say it's addictive. I'm up to level 3, the Tempest Cave level, and the game is a great combination of battle games and puzzle games. With Best Fiends, you get a totally different puzzle experience. Solve thousands of fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. An epic storyline will keep you engaged with the world of minutia. There's thousands of hours of gameplay. It's easy to learn, but difficult to master. There are thousands of levels to challenge, and you can challenge your brain with fiendish puzzles that require strategy to succeed. It's the perfect casual game to play alone or with family and friends. Best Fiends is the game to play. It's five-star rated on the Apple App Store and Google Play, and there are over 90 million downloads globally. You can play offline anywhere, perfectly going to squeeze in another level on the go. So don't miss out on this must-play game of the year. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Play today. So on top of this really difficult structure that kind of prevents like a real, you know, good uh, investigation of potential misconduct, there's also, Amelia, you talked about the law enforcement officer's bill of rights, like, you know, the, what the officer's protections are uh, under certain statutes. And let's talk a little bit about that because it poses kind of an interesting, gosh, I don't know, um, it seems like kind of a boon for, for potential defendants, you know, like this 10-day window. Can you explain how this whole thing operates and what those Bill of Rights, you know, encapsulate? Sure. So basically, so there's two things that, that I think really kind of uh, protect police officers. There's, first of all, there's a federal law um, under Garrity versus New Jersey, which basically states that government employees can't be compelled to sort of testify against themselves by their employer if that statement they were to give could be sort of used against them in a criminal proceeding. And so... What that basically means is because if you're a government employee, so if you're a police officer and you are compelled by your boss to give some sort of a statement to keep your job, and that statement could be used by your boss uh, or the government in this case to, to use against you for criminal charges, like if you're going to be compelled by your boss, you have to be sort of protected that that cannot be used against you in a court of law. So first of all, police officers, when they give statements internally, Unless they waive their Miranda rights, those statements cannot be used against them in a criminal prosecution. So there's that. Wow. Yeah. So then in addition to that, in Maryland, the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights states that um, accused officers, who, so officers who've been accused of misconduct and notified that they're under investigation, have 10 days to basically consult with legal counsel before they have to speak with internal affairs. One of which and is like that, a, that notification is like the loophole, right? Well, yeah. So this is something I sort of learned from Larry. I think everybody, uh, you know, my impression was, and I think a lot of other people's impression was, is that especially with something like as serious as a police involved shooting, that the 10 day window, the countdown sort of starts from the day of the incident. So clearly there's, you know, you have a police involved shooting, there's going to be an investigation by fit. So I.E. shouldn't that mean that the 10 day window starts there? But in fact, right. it does not. It starts the day that they're actually notified in writing that they're being investigated. And so what uh, I learned from Larry is that uh, for various reasons, internal affairs would wait to send out those written notifications to accused officers 
um, like I said, for various reasons, but that would then, you know, at that point, the 10 day window would start. And so, you know, depending on when those notifications were sent out, whether they're, you know, wait a couple days or you wait a couple months or, you know, seven months as they did in this case, you know, that could kind of, that's like, yeah, it is a loophole. So Larry, what is, what is kind of the implication of that? Like, how do you think that benefits the officers? Can you explain that? So, I mean, obviously if an officer knows that they're part of an investigation, even though they haven't been officially notified, they have time to come up with their own version of events, uh, a narrative. If there are other officers involved, they have an opportunity to get together and sort of uh, agree on a version of events. Now, right. as internal affairs detectives, we instruct officers not to discuss the investigation or the case with, with anyone else involved. Of course, that who's going to listen to that? <laughs> right. You think about the cops are going to go back to the station and, and not talk about the shooting they were just involved in for seven months? It's just human nature, too. So right. I think it kind of gives them a head start coming into the interview, to the accused interview, of, of what they're going to say. I guess here's my question. Why does FIT do this? Why does FIT wait so long to give that notice? If they know that this is potentially happening, why wouldn't they just give like an official, let's say even a template notice, shoot out an email, I don't know, the same day? Well, it's not just FIT. It's also regular internal affairs. And okay. one, of the, one of the big reasons is we had so many cases to investigate. Uh, some detectives mm -hmm. had 30 open cases at once. As one detective, how do you manage how do you manage those investigations where you're giving equal time to each one? So you end up waiting until you're ready to do the accused interview to give the officer the written notice. In a case like Keith shooting with fit, what you want to try to avoid is having to interview the officers more than once. So if you send out the notification too early and you interview them right away, and then new information comes up later on in the investigation, you end up having to go back and try to get them a second time. And by that time, they may not cooperate. Or, you know, once you start taking multiple statements, I think you just run into a whole bunch of problems, especially if you yourself aren't knowledgeable of the situation. So, okay, just so I can be clear on this, and in this interim, in this entire void of time, these officers never give like a written statement, like something that's really early on, because I mean, we all know that the further away you get from an incident, like the less reliable your witness testimony or statement is bound to be. So there's really no contemporaneous like documentation of what they witnessed that day. The involved officers know the only workaround would be, you can compel them to give a statement. The catch is then that it's not, you know, like Amelia said earlier, once you compel the officer to give a statement, it can only be used in the admin investigation right, right. criminally. But no, mm -hmm. there's no attempt to have them. Even in, when I was in internal affairs, I never saw an officer give a, a written a written statement. It's it's always uh, either video or recorded. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's talk a little bit about kind of how this all played out in, in Keith's shooting. And uh, at the top of the episode, we hear audio from Charles Holden. So uh, Amelia, can you explain to us who Mr. Holden is and why he's important here? So Mr. Holden, um, he's in his sixties. He's what's called a, a hack driver. It's an unlicensed cab. Um, it's kind of like, you know, Uber without the app and a lot cheaper. And it's like, you know, hailing down somebody in your neighborhood to who will give you a ride somewhere. And so he's been hacking, as they say, for quite a long time. And on that particular day, he was not actually looking to pick up any more customers, but a guy hopped in his car, demanded a ride, and produced a gun. And so in this sort of very quick little span of time, I've been calling it in my head, Mr. Holden's wild ride, um, <laughs> <laughs> like the Disney ride. So he's traveling down uh, West Belvedere Avenue in Park Heights. He sees ahead of him two Baltimore police units. Uh, he sees a, a transport wagon and a cruiser. Um, and he sees off to the right-hand side a little fender bender between two cars. Um, as he's approaching the accident, thinking through his head, like, I'm gonna, I need to use this opportunity to get out of here. He has this guy sitting in his car pointing a gun at him. All of a sudden, as he approaches the accident, a bus hits his car all very weird and he uses that he uses that as an excuse to sort of hop out of the car and flag down the police alerting them to the fact that this bus has hit his car and by the way there's <laughs> more a man and gun yeah 
And this yeah. is all in the span of like, you know, a couple of minutes that this all happened. Right. You know, we'll, I'll be delving more into this from the perspective of the officers um, this next week, this next episode. But from Mr. Holden's statement, um, he alerts the officers. By the time they sort of recognize what he's saying to them, the man has already hopped out of his car and is running down the block. He's running down right. the street called St. Charles, and he turns down this little alley that runs down behind uh, West Belvedere. Uh, and then the two officers that, who were there, Lane Eskins, who was the transport van um, driver, and then Catherine Philippou, um, another officer, gave chase. And then, you so know, th there were already two officers on the scene there, what you're saying, when Holden got out of the, his car. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And then, you know, in a matter of minutes is when the first gunshots were being fired. Right. Uh, so, yeah, at 9.50, you say the very first uh, Signal 13 call, us, and that's basically a call for immediate backup, mm -hmm. happens by 9.55. You got Within five minutes, you have an anonymous caller saying that they heard 15 to 20 shots. Yeah. Um, and then six minutes later, apparently, there are sufficient officers on the scene from the dispatch um, record. So, I mean, this happens so, so quickly. So when this happens, you have at least eight officers giving chase. Is that right? How many well, officers do we know for sure were there? I mean, according to their own accounting, there were nine officers total there during the period of time when uh, bullets were being fired. So Lane Eskins, Alfredo Santiago, who was the sergeant, Catherine Philippou, who I mentioned before, um, Israel Lopez, those were the four shooting officers. And then in mm -hmm. addition to them, there were um, five other officers who were on scene during the actual shooting. And then more officers arrived after that, to be clear. Uh, there was Diana Brown, there was Dean McFadden, Donald Burns, Thomas Kirby Jr., and Ian Mertens. And they were all Northwestern District officers. And they were kind of like the witnessing officers, basically. Yeah, those five. And only four of them gave statements that day down at um, police headquarters. Ian Mertens gave one uh, about a week later. I'm not sure why there was a delay for him. I find that a little troubling. But otherwise, yeah, the, those four witnessing officers are basically the four people who provided the narrative that um, supports the charges against Keith in as far as the like charges related to the police-involved shooting. So we believe four officers fired uh, their guns and Keith was hit by three bullets. Yes. He was hit... Do we know the order of those bullets? Well, we don't know the for certain, but I'm, we can fairly safely say that, that I know that he remembers his right arm being hit first. Um, that's kind of what compelled him to call Kelly. Then he also has this a graze to the right side of his back. He doesn't remember that, but I suspect that must have happened before the final, the sort of major wound, which was to his right cheek. And that bullet... Um, the trajectory of it went so that the bullet sort of nestled down in his neck um, and didn't come out. So he had a bullet in his neck until it was finally removed two years later. So that it seems to suggest that, that given the trajectory, like the gun was like above him, almost like directly above him or about like, what is the, what are we talking about here? Well, that's one of the things that I find most uh, interesting about this case. You know, the narrative from the police officers, and this is something you'll hear as I start to play their, their statements and their testimony in this next episode, but their um, account is that they were outside the garage. There's a big sort of bay door where a car could drive in because this was an auto repair shop. And so that they were all firing from outside the garage, just outside the door, directly into the garage towards sort of the back left where there were all these tool chests and then also this refrigerator that Keith was hiding behind. I don't, I think it's it's very strange, even just like not even telling you yet what they're saying Keith is doing from behind the refrigerator. The very fact that all of his wounds were to the right side of his body. Yeah, and the one to the face, the trajectory of that bullet doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me based on where these officers said they fired from. I don't get it, but here, that's the thing. That's one of those aspects of this use of force investigation. This investigation by FIT took absolutely zero time consideration whatsoever to consider how the accounts of the shooting officers or even the witnessing officers matched up with the other evidence, being both the injuries that Keith sustained, as well as where the ballistics were located within the garage and whether or not that fits with the injuries he had or their accounts. There was no sort of 
trying to, you know, figure out these discrepancies. Well, one of the crazy things here is the fact that the shooting officers, they weren't interviewed for about seven months, like late December of 2015, uh, after this incident took place. But Keith was charged like within a week. Yeah. So charges already filed. And he was released from the hospital after, I think, what, five or six days in the hospital, in a hospital gown. He still has, mm-hmm. what, at least one bullet lodged in him. Yeah. Um, he can now talk a little bit. And he tells... Kelly, that he has how many char- how many counts were there against him? Fourteen, seventeen charges. Seventeen I mean, charges. Okay. Yeah. Right. So they're charging him without an investigation even being complete, much less I don't even know to what extent it was even begun at that point. And the charges, the charges would come from, I guess, what I'm trying to figure out, Larry, is on what would the charges be based on? Whose statements, if? Officers involved haven't given statements yet. Is it just the witnessing officers on the basis of their statements? He's charged based on the one, the the robbery of the hack driver or the attempt mm-hmm. robbery of the hack driver, which uh, later on at trial, obviously he's acquitted of. So you have the hack driver statement to base the robbery charges on, and then. You sort of get into a weird scenario where you can question officers. They can answer questions based on. See, I don't. I don't know who investigated the robbery because it, it seems that that Boyd investigated the robbery. Yes. Which doesn't make sense to me because he's not a robbery detective. He's a fit detective. So, is he asking the involved officers what they saw at the accident scene when Charles Holden first pulls up? Okay. Because if he is, that seems to be a huge conflict of interest. So you can take Charles Holden's statement as far as the the robbery mm-hmm. allegations, but during the foot chase, you know Keith is charged for pointing a gun at the officers who are pursuing him. Um, and once they reach the garage, I think those are some of the charges that they specify that that he he pointed a gun at the officers who were outside of the garage. So unless a witnessing officer was there to see that and, and that information, then uh, I don't know where he got that that from. Okay. So of the charges, what I see is like, so you have the attempted armed robbery. There's three counts of first-degree assault. And the first-degree assault comes from what, firing the gun? No, because he never fired. But here's the thing. Right. That's the other interesting thing about, because one of the charges that he was initially charged with was this discharging a firearm. and But nobody, I mean, nobody actually says that. No. I mean, they. one of the problems was is that the, the witnessing officers did say in their statements there was some talk about how there were what sounded like a different caliber gun to them than their usual, their, 40, their 40s that they shoot with, the Glocks. Um, and so there was maybe this sort of suspicion at first that maybe Keith had this gun inside and was firing back at them. But that only, you know, at a certain point you realize, oh, wait a second, like he's not actually firing at us. Like there's no bullets coming at us. Um, and those we actually believe were the ricochets of their own bullets inside this garage. Um, That's insane. Yeah. And what I was going to say is that, you know, I think looking at the charges and, and looking at who had been interviewed up until that point, I think everything that's down at the garage, all the charges related to he having a gun, pointing it at the officers, et cetera, are stemming from the statements of these witnessing officers. What is definitely sort of really problematic, though, is to Larry's point, there doesn't seem to have been a separate investigation into the attempted armed robbery of Charles Holden. That seems to have still been handled by FIT. And, you know, two fit detectives were the ones who interviewed uh, Charles Holden the day of the incident. It was Charles Anderson and Lakeishna de Graffenreid, whose name I'm going to try and pronounce right for once. And (laughs) what boggles my mind is that the fit 24-hour report that was written that very day um, by Lakeishna de Graffenreid basically pinpoints Keith as being the armed robber just like hours after she's gotten a statement from Charles Holden in which he describes somebody who is in every possible way does not match Keith. And in fact, like they gave, they gave um, Charles Holden a photo array. So like they gave him photos of, I think it was something like six different people. um, One of whom was Keith Davis Jr. And he was unable to make an identification. And yet, you know, the charges against Keith were filed by a, a Northwest District officer, but the narrative in the charges and everything to support that narrative 
had come from the fit units investigation. I don't think they processed his vehicle either. I don't No, they never did they never dusted that car for fingerprints, DNA. Like if you want to confirm that Keith was armed robber, how about, you know, you dust the handle of the door? I mean, if Keith was never in that car, his fingerprints wouldn't be there. Would have been there. It would be there. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm gonna play a devil's advocate here, right? You've got this I mean this is all happening in, in a short span of time, it's not over like a, a huge region of activity. This guy takes off on foot with a gun, whoever tried to hold up Charles Holden. He's got officers literally right on his tail. What are we supposed to, if the argument is that that guy was not Keith Davis, and it, it seems like from all the inconsistencies, it was definitely not Keith. How does Keith Davis end up being the one hiding behind a refrigerator in a garage? And where what happens to the, like, what are we, what do you think happened, Amelia? Well, I think that, to say that the officers were right on this guy's tail is not necessarily true. They definitely want us to believe that. I think, you know, it helps to sort of think about the, the actual neighborhood. And, you know, when Charles Holden pulls up to the scene of this accident and he hops out of his car, now there's a guy sitting next to him with a gun out. That guy's not sitting there waiting and thinking to himself, I'm gonna see what this guy's doing. Who's he gonna talk to? Why is he getting out of the car? That guy is hopping out of the car immediately because he realizes the guy he was trying to rob is literally flagging down the police. So my opinion is, is that the armed robber got much more of a head start running than the police would like us to believe. I think that's the reason why Charles Holden says that he thought that they lost him, that they could only see his, his back was to them and he was running um, by the time they sort of realized what Charles Holden was saying to them. So I think that they were mm -hmm. a little bit further behind. And then he ran down this alley and there are a number of, there are a couple different ways the real armed robber could have kind of gone a different direction and they could have lost him. Um, and so my personal opinion, and I think that this will bear out as I sort of go through the rest of the evidence, is that the real armed robber likely disappeared around a street called Linden Heights. That's a really sort of little small street that hits that alley and goes straight through to Belvedere. But this is a street that comes before Reistertown Road. Reistertown Road is where Keith was standing on that little corner near the alley in front of a convenience store. And so if you picture it this way, the officers are running, the guy has already sort of disappeared. They look ahead down the block towards Reistertown Road Keith starts running because somebody yells he's got a gun. And so what you see oh. in front of you is a guy who's black, who's taking off running. You never had a really good look at the armed robber in the first place. And in the heat of the moment, I think these officers thought that he was the armed robber, chased Keith into that garage. And then for reasons that I will further explain in an upcoming episode, they really lost their shit there. And they uh, started shooting. And I think those ricochets, the initial sort of ricochets of those bullets, got all the other officers who showed up to start firing as well. I mean, I think it was honestly like the wild, wild west. The amount of times mm -hmm. that they fired into what was a very dark garage is insane. How many times did they discharge their weapons total? I have to say, this is something that I'm still trying to figure out because, how do I put this? There was an early number cited early on. Um, I believe it came from the state an, at an early, early hearing. I haven't yet confirmed this yet, but for the longest time, for years now, the belief has been, the honest belief on the part of Keith's supporters has been that the officers fired 44 times. That's a number that has never been, that's been used by the media, reported by the media, the Baltimore Sun, uh, used consistently. That's a number that has never been disputed by the police department or the state's attorney's office. However, when you actually look at the firearms reports for all of the officers' guns and the number of um, missing bullets, um, they actually fired 32 times, which is still 32 times too many, if you ask me. That's a lot. It's, still an, That's a lot of bullets, it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think it's very interesting that there is this sort of unclear, I, I'm very curious about how the number 484 kind of first came out. Um, I believe it came from the state. I'm just, I'm still trying to locate that hearing. The audio, I, I went to go listen to it and find it at the hearing. The hearing was missing from the court reporter's office, um, at least, or it wasn't showing up in their like search of that case. 
But I have a suspicion about how that number of 44 could have been reached mathematically based on some erroneous information. But I'm sort of waiting to really dive into that until I have full-on confirmation. But I think it, it's, it speaks to the lack of investigation on the part of the state's attorney's office that they would give out incorrect information, not realizing it, but that they would get that number wrong. So Susan, Mother's Day is right around the corner. Have you thought it out? What are you going to do for mom? I have thought this out because uh, I won some super good daughter points last week by seeing flowers by mom. Oh. And better yet, my little sister happens to walk in the door as they're arriving. And so she gets to see why I am the great daughter <laughs> and be stood up because she did not think ahead. Why you're the favorite daughter, right? <laughs> yeah, I won't go that far. But this time I won. And my mom called and also... Like, she called, was so excited. I was like, wow, I am an asshole for not doing this all the time. Oh, I know. Um, We should think about our moms a little more often. I know. Like, I didn't intentionally not send flowers. I just didn't think about it. And it turns out I am really bad I did. (laughs) Well, you know, you can always put that on a schedule. But where'd you get the flowers from? I got them from Books. B-O-U-Q-S. Oh, okay. Like, bouquet. Get it? It took a bit to figure out. Totally get it. Totally get it. I have heard about books. They have some gorgeous, gorgeous bouquets, arrangements that I haven't seen actually with any other flower sellers. Yeah. And that might be because they have these farms, listen to this, that are located on the side of a volcano that produce flowers so gorgeous that if your mom is able to get on social media, she's going to post those pictures and brag about you. Oh, man. I wish my mom was on social media. She just sent that out and been like, look how amazing my daughter Susan is. But she is not. Yeah, my mom can't even text message. She did text me a picture of the flowers, and they were gorgeous. They were lilies, and they were this bright orange color, and I loved them. Oh, that sounds beautiful. And our moms have put up with a lot when it comes to us, and I just recently learned Susan cut off her finger when she was four. I can't even imagine <laughs> if my child did that to me. Your mom deserves a bouquet at she least every did. other month, and so does my mom. <laughs> my mom yelled at that doctor until he put the finger back on, because he was thinking it was not going to make it back. So really, I owe her a ton, including my little finger, or my ring finger. So thank you, Mom. More flowers for you from now on. You Go, Mama Simpson. Look, send mom, send mom's day flowers your mom deserves from Books. Order today and get an extra 20% off when you enter undisclosed as you check out. That's Books, B-O-U-Q-S dot com and enter undisclosed to save an extra 20% off. Books.com. Okay, so let's talk about the gun because that's kind of a big deal here. Let's say... If Keith Davis was not the man who held up Charles Holden, how do they find him with a gun? Because Keith, once he's shot in the face, apparently he what he passes out. He's not conscious anymore. Does he wake up in a hospital? Can you tell us what happens from his perspective after that? Personally, his own memory of everything that happened after once he was shot in the face is very sort of hazy. He has very sort of vague. That's understandable. <laughs> yeah, he has vague memories of like being dragged a little bit. Um, he remembers them going through his pockets. He doesn't remember the medic coming. And I think that probably right around that time is when he really fully passed out. But the gun, you know, Keith says he never had a gun, uh, that the gun that was found in the garage, the gun was found on top of the refrigerator where he had been hiding um, next to his wallet, which nobody has ever accounted for how his wallet got up on the fridge. Like the officers never say, oh, he took his wallet out. Their version of the events is that, you know, Keith had this gun and he was threatening them with it. And then when he surrendered, he put the gun on top of the refrigerator and then crawled out uh, and surrendered. Um, After getting his face shot. Yes, exactly. Well, they try and downplay the the sort of severity of shooting somebody in the face. Um, (laughs) It was like incredible. Um, But yeah, so this gun, you know, it's one of the biggest sort of issues in this case is where did that gun come from? Because that gun, as you'll find out, um, ends up being a really, it's the most significant piece of evidence in the second case that Keith will be charged with um, a little bit later this season. But yeah, the gun is a huge issue. Where did it come from? You know, I think that at a certain point in time to say that uh, police would plant a gun on a citizen, some people would scoff at that as some sort of a conspiracy theory, but... I think that ship has sailed when it comes to Baltimore. Um, Right, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's literally something that the Gun Trace Task Force was, like, advising people to carry around BB guns to plan on people in case they accidentally hurt somebody. And, you know, this is... It's not crazy to think that they might have planted that gun, but... Then we have the description of the gun from Holden, which doesn't at all match 
the gun that was found on the scene. Right. Um, are, Larry, could you tell us a little bit about the difference in the guns? And does that mean that they just kind of look different aesthetically on the outside or they were just completely different kinds of guns? I know nothing about guns, by the way. No, because what Charles Holden describes, he even describes it as a nine, meaning a nine millimeter. The gun that's recovered in the garage is a, is a 22. It's, it's referred to as a 22 long rifle. But if you look at it, it looks like a semi-automatic pistol. But he, he says it's all silver. The gun that's recovered does have some silver on it, but it also has a good portion of the, the frame that's black, and the handle is extremely distinctive. So if someone is sitting in your passenger seat robbing you and you're staring at the gun and Charles Holden keeps describing it as, as a great big gun, I would think that you would remember such a distinctive uh, multicolored wood grain handle. Right. Like, like, like it, it doesn't look like a normal... It really doesn't look like a normal everyday gun. Looking at that gun, I don't think that the thing that would stand out to you would be like shiny silver. You know, right. it's just it's just not. Right. Well, okay, so I mean the description of the gun doesn't match. The description of the perp doesn't match. I mean, you said also, I mean, there were so many different things from the clothing and the hair and the height. How tall is Keith? He's uh, five nine, five ten. So he, the height description matches, basically. Yeah. yeah, he describes a kind of thicker sort of a thicker build. Yeah, the plaited hair. He right. kept his hair very, very short. Um, the clothing was completely different, for sure. Right. Keith was not wearing shorts. He was wearing jeans, and he was wearing a white tank top. And this uh, armed robber was wearing shorts, like blue or black shorts, and um, a white T-shirt that had a design on the front, okay. like some sort of like a logo or like writing. Keith is also very heavily tattooed as well. And you would notice that in a tank top, certainly, up that yeah. close. Yeah. Um, one question I have, so, okay, right off the bat, and I'm not an investigator, and I'm not a law enforcement officer, I'm not a professional, but it seems like you got the wrong guy. Um, what about video footage? I mean, we know from your Freddie Gray coverage that there are cameras everywhere in that area. So why is there no camera footage that could show us kind of who exited that cab or what happened? I don't think that there was actually uh, at that particular location, any CCTV cameras that would have captured it. Um, CCTV will become an issue in the other case that we'll be discussing. But but there are, on Reisertown Road and on that particular sort of block where uh, the alley meets Reisertown Road, and then I would think also, yeah, up on Belvedere, there are a number of like little corner stores that have security cameras. Now, whether or not all those security cameras were operable, who knows? But what I can say for certain is that there's no evidence whatsoever in the FIT investigation materials that suggests that there was ever an attempt to canvas the neighborhood to find out whether any security camera footage captured any part of the foot chase. Um, so that's kind of what I mean about how you know, Fit never was investigating, like, was never investigating Keith as being the victim of something. Right, um, right. It's like the minute they, you know, the minute that there was this gun in the garage that they could tie to him or they decided they could tie to him and whether or not Fit had any knowledge whatsoever of where that gun came from. I mean, if you're me, I believe that gun was planted, okay? But whether mm -hmm. or not Fit knew is not yet clear to me. But regardless, they, it's like from that point forward, it was no longer a, did these officers use appropriate force? It was, these officers totally shot somebody who deserves to be shot, and let's make sure that we can, you know, wrap this up into a nice little bow by right. charging this guy with as much as we can. And, you know, I think one of the things I've noticed about the Baltimore Police Department is, you know, when they're not... Um, Obviously, not turning over exculpatory evidence is always an issue, as you know we're familiar with from the Adnan Syed case. I mean, and I think in this case, um, this is an example of something else that they do, which is not seeking evidence that could potentially be exculpatory. We need to talk about something. Constipation, abdominal pain, and bloating. You tell yourself it's not that bad. You take laxatives and modify your diet and exercise routine, but thinking about it all the time is frustrating. Do you find yourself making up excuses instead of admitting to people you don't want to go out because you're worried about leaving home? Despite your best efforts to feel better, your symptoms keep coming back. If this feels all too relatable, you're not alone. If your gut symptoms return again and again and you don't know why, it may be time to seek help. 
Like 13 million others, you might have a real medical condition called irritable bowel syndrome with constipation, or IBSC. To get more info about your symptoms and IBSC, go to ohmygut.info slash podcast. Learn about your constipation, abdominal pain, and bloating. And if you're ready, find out ways to talk to your doctor or access one online. That's ohmygut.info slash podcast. ohmygut.info slash podcast. So, well, let me ask you this, um, Larry, one thing that you guys talk about in this episode is kind of the shocking lack of qualifications. You have a great conversation with Professor Seth Stoughton, who says, well, you know, if there are officers doing these kinds of investigations, these are the kinds of, this is a skill set and experience and training I would expect to see in those officers. And Larry, you said that like none of that existed in the unit. Can you tell us like what kind of officers were part of this unit? Uh, I remember most, well, not most of them, but I, as I recall, some of the detectives came from um, our EEOC section, which technically fell under the Office of Professional Responsibility. There were others who were had admin jobs, uh, patrol jobs. I don't know any of them who ever worked in homicide. And I don't know any of them who ever even investigated a homicide. I, I mean, I responded to plenty of homicides in patrol, but you don't really do any investigation. So to my knowledge, none of them had any experience investigating homicides. Maybe the closest any of them had backgrounds in would be like a robbery detective or a, a district DDU unit, a district detective unit. Um, but, so, but none of them had any qualifications or training in, in terms of investigating um, a homicide or specifically a police-involved shooting. Okay, look, I mean, if I had a generous spirit towards Baltimore police, I would say, oh, maybe it was the lack of training by these officers and experience and, and these kinds of investigations that led them to do a really awful job investigating uh, the use of force in this case. But like I said, I'm not a professional, and I can already tell off the bat that something is really wrong here. I mean, like, I, I feel like you almost don't need the kind of training and yeah. experience, you know, necessary to be like, oh, nothing matches up to what the actual, you know, the, the best um, witness we have about this guy. You know, because the whole point is these officers are giving chase to who? They're giving chase to somebody who is like a potential armed robber, right? And if the, the one witness who saw that person up close and personal is like, this is not it. This is not the person. Uh, you really don't need a lot of specialized training. So that leads me to my question is how much of this is like deliberate misconduct and just willful, like not giving a shit basically, <laughs> Larry? Well, my opinion is that it becomes immediate damage control. I think once Fit shows up and they have a police involved shooting so close to the end of the uprising that they immediately. This is like a few months later, right? In April, Freddie's injured and then this happens in June, right? Yeah. Right. So so this happens about five weeks after the, I guess, the official end of the uprising. So what I think happened is, and I mean, I, I heard other detectives and supervisors within internal affairs wishing that Keith would die. Oh, because it, it, it would have been it would have been much easier because then there's no there's there's no alternate version of events. You only have what the police are are telling you. So. My opinion is they went into immediate damage control because they wanted to to prevent another uprising. So I think once you focus on justifying the use of force immediately, you're going to get tunnel vision and you're either going to purposely miss evidence and not care that you're missing it, or you're just so focused on justifying the shooting that you're not even looking for anything else. All right. So, I mean, is there anything else you want to talk about specifically that I didn't mention before I get to social media questions? Yeah, I did want to talk about something. Um, you know, there's this section in the episode where um, I'm talking about, you know, the length of time that it, that it took for the officers to be notified that they were under investigation to finally give their statements right. to sort of um, give a sense of what was happening at that same time, um, I was sort of trying to frame it and sort of talking about each day that Keith was in the hospital. Um, and there was a moment where on, uh, I believe it was on June 11th, where finally he's, you know, he's gone through surgery, but he's been under guard at the hospital the entire time. For a couple days, his family couldn't see him. Kelly couldn't see him finally until June 10th. 
And then on June 11th, finally, a couple fit detectives show up in his hospital room. Keith's jaw is wired shut. He's been surrounded after this, this shooting, where, keep in mind, Keith had no idea why these police officers chased him into this garage and started shooting at him. Like, mm. it, he didn't know, nobody knew anything. Right. They were still finding out, you know, the charges hadn't been filed yet. That was the first time they learned anything about anything. So he's been shot. He's surrounded in the hospital by officers from the department that shot him. Um, there were even a couple of the witnessing officers who showed up to the hospital at different points. So he's literally surrounded by the people who tried to kill him. Um, That's terrifying. He's not, yeah. yeah, he's not being allowed to see his family. And so, you know, when the fit detectives finally show up on the 11th and start asking him questions, knowing full well he won't be able to respond verbally because his jaw is wired shut, um, he writes down on a piece of paper, uh, you know, suck my dick. And <laughs> I, which I think I included that in this episode because to me it communicates like, I feel Keith's frustration and fear and anger and just like fed up in that moment. Um, and I also think there's part of me that's just like, yeah, you tell him, Keith. Um, but I also, you know, didn't think about the fact that to some people who uh, whose perspectives I don't respect, but um, that can be seen as being um, aggressive. And I wanted to be very sort of clear, um, and this is something that Kelly talked about on Facebook, um, and I wanted to sort of piggyback on that and be very, very clear about the trauma that continued from the day of the shooting forward, what Keith was put through. He was shot, and then it didn't end from there. And so by the time he said that to those detectives, first of all, he never had any uh, uh, obligation to be polite to them, as far as I'm concerned. But you know, him taking that tone with them was more than justified after what he had been put through. This is not that long. I mean, this is literally within a week after yeah. he's been shot. I mean, in a matter of days. It's so, and also one thing you said in the episode, the one bullet was like lodged in his neck for how long? Two years. That's why, how? Oh man, we're going to, I'm going to do a whole segment on his medical issues because that okay. is another aspect of this case that is so appalling is the way that the state's attorney's office um, really stood in the way of Keith getting proper medical care. And, you know, the way that Keith was finally able to get that bullet removed is because Team Keith, his supporters, and led by Kelly, did a massive call-in campaign, literally calling the Department of Corrections and calling the prison where he was staying and demanding that he finally be able to be transported to a medical facility and get this bullet removed, this bullet that was moving in the direction of his spine. Like he, oh they needed, God. it needed to be pulled out. Um, and to, nothing, to say nothing about the fact that like, it can't be good for you to have a lead bullet in your system for two years. I feel um, like that's a lawsuit right there. Oh yeah, I think so too. All so right. he's been through really in, uh, unbelievable trauma over the last four years and his strength is um, something to behold, I have to say. Well, I want to get into some social media questions before we run out of time. Uh, we've got about another 10 minutes. So we've got a lot of them. And I've, to be honest, I've got my own so many questions, but some of these <laughs> cover them. So let's start here. Uh, this question is from Trevor Say, And Trevor's asking, is Marilyn Mosby the new Doug Evans? What is her motivation? Is it political? Because the similarities between the Curtis Flowers case and Keats is uncanny. Um, he also goes on to ask, as Keith describes it himself, he wasn't alone outside the corner shop. There were others around him. So why did the cops specifically chase after him? Why did they target him versus others? I think it's by, you know, Keith ran straight. Um, so he was, if you're coming down that, that alley and Keith is uh, kind of at the corner and they look ahead and they see Keith running basically down the continuation of the alley. I can see how, if you're one of the officers who was chasing, how it, he would look like the only one who was running. Because if everybody else sort of took off in different directions, you wouldn't right. have been able to see the people going down Reistertown Road from that vantage point. Um, I do believe that they legitimately thought they were chasing the right guy. Um, right, right. But I, they were wrong. Um, as for the yeah. question about Mosby, you know, 
that's the million dollar question. And I, there's a lot of sort of theories about that. I think it's that her motivation has sort of evolved um, over these years and the number of prosecutions. I think honestly now it is a matter of, I think she's dug in her heels that if she were to back down now, it would not be a good look for her. Um, and I think she has a real resentment of Kelly Davis for calling her out all these years. For being and, an advocate, um, basically. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a huge part of it. Larry, Marilyn Mosby, better or worse than uh, Thiru Vignaraja? <laughs> that's my question. <laughs> oh, what kind of question is that? <laughs> it's a question that my heart deeply wants answered. Um <laughs> I've been tweeting at Marilyn Mosby in the nicest manner possible to um, give Keith Davis justice. I really haven't said a word to her about uh, because the case hasn't really been with her, uh, Adnan's case. But yeah, but you have experience with both these prosecutors. Can you tell us like what what you know of them and what you you know your position on them? I worked closely with Theroux on a BGF investigation. It, it turned into a wiretap. Uh, it also involved Mark Vini. <laughs> so I sort of have firsthand experience with a couple of these, uh, a couple of the people involved in the Keith Davis Jr. case. Um, I've never worked for or with Marilyn Mosby one-on-one. Um, I've never even interacted with her. Okay. Uh, I, 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 it's such a hard question to answer. I, I mean, I think Theroux is just really bad at his job. Like he's just inept. I think mm-hmm. Marilyn Mosby is very spiteful. Um, I don't think that she's it's that she's bad at her job. I think that she's intentionally bad at her job out of spite. So it's like personal. I mean, which is kind of shocking to me. It seems like these prosecutors take these things personally. Oh, definitely. I I think without Kelly, maybe if, if the first trial ended in an acquittal, depending on how the murder trial went. I think if she could have dropped it if mm-hmm. if she had to end up trying it again. I don't think she would have tried it four or five times. I think this is personal with Kelly and Team Keith. Yeah. I think also Marilyn Mosby has had, I don't think she's one to admit when she's wrong. And so for her to drop this case, she would need to have a way of sort of tossing somebody else under the bus for it. Um, like it. in the case of... Yeah, in the case of the Freddie trials, like she dropped the charges against the remaining officers before all of them were finished. And... They kind of tossed the, you know, some of the investigators from the police department under the bus, which, right. well, to a certain degree, also didn't really take responsibility for her own office. In Keith's case, you know, there have been a number of times where she could have reasonably um, blamed. Found it out. Found it out, basically. Absolutely. Like, there have been a number of times where it's like, listen, Mosby, like, you could have, you, she could have tossed uh you know, the, the last prosecutor who was on the case, Andrea Mason, uh, was arrested and convicted of drunk driving and, you know, only fired her after it became public and literally just as as Andrea Mason was finishing up her probation. You know, that would have been if she had sort of addressed that early on, maybe she could have used that in his excuse. Um, this last trial, there was a, a video that had been withheld for three years that finally surfaced. And that could have been an excuse to kind of toss out the case. But she hasn't taken them. And I think to Larry's point, I think it's about spite. Well, I could be wrong here, but I feel like Marilyn Mosby might listen to this series or somebody very close to her will be listening and reporting. And I kind of, I'm kind of shocked because I feel like this is her being very clearly on the wrong side of a criminal justice issue and like kind of the political repercussions. I think maybe the calculation she's making is that if I admit I was wrong, that'll hurt me politically worse than if I drop it and say, you know what, we got something wrong. And I think she's wrong on that calculation. I think her political credibility and capital will increase if she's like, you know, the investigation was shoddy. We didn't get this right. Whatever. Uh, I didn't get it right. I mean, to me, it's like, you really, I think that this is something prosecutors have to be willing to do. They have to be willing to examine their cases and decide, you know, be willing to say, we just simply do not have enough. Um, and you know, you're going into the fourth murder trial. Like, no case should need to be tried four times. Sorry. Like, right. that's a sign. Speaking of which, case- I want to move on to the next social media question. And this is from Birdie, who says, thanks for a great podcast. I'm hooked. How can he be charged for the same crime over and over again? Isn't there double jeopardy in the USA? I know the answer, but I'm going to let one of you answer it about what's happening here. Why double jeopardy is not applying? Double jeopardy isn't applying because, first of all, he was acquitted in the robbery case. So he's not being retried for the robbery. The 
murder case, he's technically never been acquitted or convicted. So there is no double jeopardy. Like the, the case has never reached a legal conclusion. So it's the first, you know, there's been three trials so far in the murder. The first one ended in a hung jury. The second um, trial ended with a conviction, but it was overturned right away, basically right away uh, before any appeals, you know, process. It was like a motion to throw out the verdict, basically. And that's, we'll get into why. So that conviction didn't stand. And then the third murder trial, which happened last year, also ended in a hung jury. And the state's attorney basically decides, I'm just going to continue to try him. And he's got another trial scheduled for July of this year, right? Yes. Okay. Um, this is a question not related strictly to this, but kind of related to all the work that you are doing in Baltimore and pretty much all of us are kind of doing in the state of Maryland. Um, and that's about the courtroom audio. And I know, <laughs> Amelia, you were at Keith's hearing the other day and it was like, well, will I be arrested when I walk into this courtroom? So let's talk a little bit about kind of what's happening here. And you do mention it, I think, at the in the first episode about this ongoing kind of legal battle that we are mounting together against the court rules. Um, can you talk a little bit about what is the state of Maryland's reasoning behind the law prohibiting courtroom audio, which I don't know what the public policy reasons for that is, and how likely is it that they will try to stop you or take you to court, or what are kind of the repercussions of us continuing to do this? I mean, to be honest, I don't really know what the reasoning is for it. Um, you know, it's a fairly short little blip in the Maryland code of Maryland code of something. I forget. <laughs> okay. Code of, of criminal procedure. Maybe I forget, but okay. um, it's just, it's, it's basically against broadcasting it. Um, you know, so everybody has, you know, a defendant has a right to a public trial and the public has a right to those proceedings. And so up until now, the rule has been that you can order either transcripts or you can order courtroom audio. Video you can't get as a member of the public. That's limited just to people who are part of the case, like the attorneys. Um, but the rule has been that, you know, if you're a media outlet that gets this audio, you're not allowed to use any of it on your broadcast in any sort of way, which uh, we are challenging because that really is stifling of First Amendment rights. I mean, you know, not everybody has sort of the access, the means, et cetera, to sort of see or listen to any of these proceedings, and they have the right to. Um, and you know, and sort of telling as a as journalists telling an accurate, fair story. Um, I knew that trying to tell the story of Keith Davis Jr. was going to be incredibly difficult to do without being able to actually use the audio from these four trials so far. Um, I was literally thinking, well, am I gonna have to do impressions of everybody? Like, and even that you get into squicky territory because you know, somebody else acting out somebody else's testimony you know, all that does is produce people who are saying, oh, well, you're saying it like that, but how do right. we know that you said it in that right. way? And, I've know, been there, I, done that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. I just really want people to be able to hear, this is the state's case that they have presented over these four trials. These are their witnesses. Hear them for yourself. Now, obviously, I'm, I'm having to pick and choose what I'm showing or, you know, including in the podcast, but I certainly hope it's a a more expansive and thorough exploration of this case than has been done before. And then as far as things that have happened since, well, they haven't done anything in terms of like coming for me or filing any sort of, you know, warrants or anything like that. What they have done, apparently, is now they are no longer distributing courtroom audio. So if you are so a member- You can't of even listen to it. Not you, can't, you can listen to it, but you can't take it out. Yes, exactly. So if you want to hear something from a court proceeding, you can go into the um, the court recorder's office at the courthouse. Um, and this is happening in Baltimore. Now, whether this applies across the state, I, I'm not exactly clear. It sounds like it's only coming from the Baltimore Circuit Court administrative right. judge. Um, court. I feel like there's they're like wanted posters of all of us like in that courtroom okay. um, somewhere. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like, look, there really is no public policy reason to prevent the public from hearing or from media uh, broadcasting courtroom audio. These are matters of public record. Transcripts yeah. are available, and hearing and seeing it. This is part of the public education. Our tax 
dollars pay for it. As far as I'm concerned, I do know that one uh, potential, I mean, like, you know, what we expected in the undisclosed team when we said, yeah, we're willing to do this, uh, and it is sad and shocking that no other media outlet has ever done this uh, to mount this challenge. Uh, We expect it to be maybe held in contempt if we went ahead and used the audio, which could mean, like, daily fines or an injunction filed against us somehow to stop from airing the audio, something of that um, nature. Look, you can make a podcast without like these additional like audio sources, but it's absolutely not the same. And also it's a flipping podcast. I mean, we like rich audio. (laughs) So, you know, we don't know how this is going to go. We certainly hope that, you know, it will probably be litigated now. And we certainly hope we don't get an outcome that is that'll hurt other defendants. And we are concerned that the circuit court is not allowing, basically they're saying no audio is going to be given out now. I mean, I don't know how really it works, but apparently the judge has handed down a court order, but I don't know how that could really legally stand against the actual Maryland law about this stuff. Right. Because it's in contradiction to it, which, which is why, but I will also say this, there's another way to tackle this issue and that is through legislation and we're totally already thinking about that. So, yeah. all right, a couple more questions. And, uh, but so these questions now, there's a couple of questions about like the actual, you know, that are related, I think probably to the acquittal uh, in the robbery um, trial. Like for example, he saw cops with guns. So Keith Davis ran, but you know, weren't there others in the market established? He was there buying guns and he wasn't holding up Holden. I mean, I think we have to remember that he wasn't convicted. He was actually acquitted of that. So given yeah. the acquittal, Given the acquittal, I think what's crazy to me is that given that he's acquitted of that, so now for sure it's been established by a court of law and jurors that this is not the man who you were trying to find for an attempted robbery, an armed, you know, attempted armed robbery, but there's no repercussion for them shooting him up. No. Oh, not at all. And in fact, what you'll hear is that, you know, all, he was acquitted of all the original 17 charges. Now, one thing that happens in his case that I haven't yet gotten to, um, but there were additional charges added in the armed robbery case later that year. And they were all related to the fact that he had a prior felony conviction and therefore could not be in possession of or in the vicinity of a firearm. Right. So what ended up happening is that Keith was convicted of one of those charges. That was the only conviction, though. Everything related to the actual armed robbery, everything related to the accounts of the officers of him pointing a gun, all of that, you know, the the jury didn't believe that that was something the prosecutors proved. But what ends up happening is, is in the murder case, what we've seen at every trial so far is that part of the state's case really, really relies upon this armed robbery narrative as presented by these shooting officers. So, And, and just to be clear, just to be clear for our listeners... The murder case relates to, and we're going to get into this in future episodes, that the gun that allegedly is found on Keith that we believe is probably planted there is related to an, a murder, basically. Yeah. Like, it's they, they connect that gun to a murder. And so now he's being prosecuted for murder. Yes. It's a murder that occurred uh, five hours earlier, so five hours before the police-involved shooting. The murder case is crazy. I mean, imagine for Keith, you know, he goes through this armed robbery trial and whatever the resolution, you know, even though there was prison time that kind of went along with this, the one conviction that stood, you know, there's still a sort of sense of uh, this is over at least. And what ended up happening was that he was charged for this murder a week after the end of the armed robbery trial. And that's been his life for the last three years. It's just, it's a shocking. Now, there are some questions related to like, evidence connecting Keith to the gun, but I think we might be better um, off saving those for future episodes as we get more into this. So I think with that, we're going to wrap up. It's a nice long episode and there's a lot of information we got out of it. Larry, thank you so much for joining us today. And also I want folks, I know you're busy on Twitter. I've I've been following you on Twitter for a bit. And so I'd love our listeners to be able to find you too. What's your handle there? I'm at XO Amelia. It's at LJ Smith 3663. Awesome. All right. Our listeners will find you and then we'll also tag you in this episode and you can find it that way too. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Amelia, for all you're doing. I hope you get some sleep. We look forward to episode three. (laughs) Thank you so much. Bye. All right. Thanks guys. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to this special addendum episode of Undisclosed. I'd like to thank the following people. Hannah McCarthy for audio production. Baluki for our logo, Patrick Cortez and Ramiro Marquez for theme music, and Mital Talhan, our executive producer. 
And as always, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram using the handle at UndisclosedPod.